0: Welcome to Real GM Radio. This is Daniel Aru, your host, so happy to have you with us. This episode is with Nate Duncan a Basketball Insiders, longtime friend of the show. It's great to have him on. We go in a lot of different directions from what's going on with the Cavaliers to the dominance of the Warriors and uh, some interesting topics on the Eastern and Western Conferences, who the biggest threats are, who he thinks the best teams are at full strength, and then circles back to teams like the Knicks and what they can do to get better and who he has for some of the major awards right now. So I hope you enjoy it. Runs about an hour 18. It was a really great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, man, anytime.
0: So I, I figure the place to start is probably with the Warriors. They've had a pretty impressive run the whole season, but they've had some really good games recently. You just covered, covered the game against the Cleveland Cavaliers that was on ESPN. What were your takeaways from that game for both them and Cleveland?
1: Well, I thought Cleveland actually, their half court defense was somewhat encouraging. Now, they gave up well over 30 fast break points. That's probably not exactly what David Blatt would like to see. But when I talked to him after the game, he said that he was actually happy with how they defended in the half court. You know, I think Mazgov is someone who's going to help them. And, And really, their biggest problem overall, you know, people were talking about how Irving and Love and James weren't playing quite up to their levels. And maybe that was the case. But these guys had, like, three, four guys in the rotation who are really, like, almost below replacement level. And, you know, Dellavedova Vadova had, like, a 6 PER. Mike Miller has a 6 PER. Sean Marion has a 10 PER, and he doesn't space the floor at all. James Jones has been getting minutes for them recently. And then, of course, you know, they only had two big men now with the demise of Verja So, really, just getting three guys who are NBA players – is going to be such an upgrade for them and was necessary, especially Mozgov, who uh, looked pretty good in limited minutes. So so I think it was, overall it was an encouraging game for the Cavs, and that, that 112-94 final score wasn't indicative of how well they played throughout most of the game.
0: And what's so important about that is, it isn't a situation where, like you talk about sometimes with teams that their depth issues won't come as much into the fold in the playoffs because those guys will be out of the rotation. The issues that they had before the trades that they did this week, those issues would have been there. Those issues would have stuck with them even in the playoffs, and maybe even been exacerbated just with the comparative depth that the other teams have.
1: Yeah, you know, I I wrote on, on the Cavs a long piece yesterday... Kind of looking at the at the trades, and the big focus of that was the upcoming cap and tax implications for them. But I, I did touch as well on on what the trade means for them this year. And I think now at least David Griffin has given them a chance, it has given the stars a chance that if they play well enough, this is a team that can get to where they wanted to be at the start. And I think with some of the depth that they had, uh, before this, that may not have been possible. Now I think those guys uh, can assert themselves to the point where Cleveland might realistically be a threat again in the East. Well,
0: and as you expressed really well in the piece, that change that I think we both think was necessary did come at quite a cost, not only in the short term, but in the long term, because it changes the nature of some of their assets, because now they have to figure out what they're going to do with them on Shumpert. Obviously, they had the Tristan Thompson thing hanging over their head before, but... The Brendan Haywood contract is something that CBA nerds like you and I are really interested in, but the challenge with it is that it's really not an asset they can use now, but the way that they have to use it now gets really complicated because of how much money it'll cost Dan Gilbert to use it.
1: Well, so let's go back for our our readers who are not as big a dorks as, or I guess listeners who are not as big a dorks as we are. The Haywood contract, you remember that he got amnestied by the Dallas Mavericks and then the Bobcats now Hornets bid on his contract. He was making about 10 million a year. They bid two million. So on the books of the team that he's actually on, he counts for two million than he has in the last couple of years. The Mavericks are still paying him the rest of his 10 million. But that contract had a non-guaranteed last year, which is going to be next year, the 2015-16 season. The way the amnesty procedure works is that that last non-guaranteed year comes onto the books of the team that has him. Now, of course, no one wants to pay Brendan Hayward 10 million dollars a year. That would, that would be foolhardy, but what they can do is then trade him to another team, pick up up to 125% of his 10.5 million salary, and then that team could just cut him. So, it's basically he's almost a trade exception for over 12 million dollars that they can use for next year. The problem is now they've given up a fair number of their assets that would have enticed another team to give them a useful player in exchange for Haywood. So now they gave away the Memphis pick they had. They traded away a pick to the Celtics. That's a 2016 pick, but is protected up through 2019. So because you can't trade first round picks two years in a row, then they can't actually trade their first rounder until 2020 or they can't trade any first rounder until their 2021 first rounder so that sort of explains the situation that they're in with this Haywood contract and then of course also they're going to be so deep in the luxury tax that if they pick up another 10 12 million in salary you're going to be paying almost four times that amount in luxury tax
0: yeah I, th- I think that that hit on a lot of the big issues and, the other component, you went into this really well in the piece, is that without those sweeteners, you're looking more for what would be a salary dump. And that just, the the area where it would make the Cavs meaningfully better, but also be a player that the other team is willing to sacrifice, you know, willing to do that kind of unloading, is a very narrow pool. That wouldn't even include, I would guess, a guy like J.R. Smith, who in, this, in the trade that just happened, it seemed like he was the sweetener that allowed the Cavs to get Iman Shumpert. Or the, the Mont Shumpert was the sweetener to give for, the, for the Knicks to give him up. It's probably the better way to think about it. So there will be people who work for that, and the advantage that they have is that it kicks in, though, right as the summer starts. So if there's a team that, let's say, this summer's Kyle Lowry is out there and they go, oh, if we could clear another $8 million in cap, we could get this guy that we really like, they could do it that way. And, but they'd have to be ready to strike while the iron is hot and they'd have to be willing to kind of make it work in terms of other assets going back the other way.
1: Well, it's tough, too. I mean, I get the impression that Dan Gilbert is pretty much willing to open up the checkbook. I mean, that's the import of these moves. There's really almost no way that they're not going to be paying at least you know tens of millions of dollars in tax next year. But you talked about it. The quality of player that they're going to get for that Haywood contract is not as high now that they don't have as many assets to expend, and so now you really want to pay another 50 million dollars so you can get some guy that another team wanted to dump i guess the other thing we should mention too is if they weren't into the tax uh and and over the apron which is four million dollars above the tax then they could have actually potentially done a sign and trade for haywood and that you know if you could have brought in a free agent then you, know, you don't really have to give up an asset as a sweetener necessarily, or at least not much of one, because the guy's already a free agent, the team's going to lose him anyway. Now that they're so deep into the tax, that's not going to be an option for them either. They're just going to have to trade for a guy who's already under contract.
0: Yeah, that, that's a good thing to add in there. And the other thing I was thinking about with the trades, obviously they gave up a lot to to get to Mifel Moscow, but I think that... Their full strength lineup now actually makes a lot more sense if they can ever get there because they have so much more wing depth, and I think Mozgov makes sense as the the fifth starter in that sense. Like I think a a, a lineup of Kyrie, LeBron, Love, Shumpert, and Mozgov is a pretty compelling group if they can get get them out there and keep them healthy.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, they, they Dion Waiters was another guy we didn't talk about. He was talked about as, you know, at least someone who could be somewhat effective at the two guard. That really wasn't the case this year. He had a 12 PR or so, and obviously PR is not the be-all, end-all, but, you know, it's a good proxy to start with, and he wasn't playing any defense. So now you've got Schumpert, a guy who at least at various points in his career has shown the ability to be a 3 and D guy. He can take some of the more exhausting uh, wing players that LeBron really kind of doesn't quite have the energy to guard at least over a full game any longer and then of course Moscow's defense at the rim is something that could really help Kevin Love a lot I, my concern for them is really going to be when they're guarding teams that go with a stretch four last night when Love and Thompson were in the game they actually had Thompson guarding Draymond Green who was a stretch four which makes sense because Thompson probably has a little more lateral quickness and, and just competes a little harder than Kevin Love defensively. But then that leaves Kevin Love guarding your center, and then he's the main guy on health defense trying to protect the basket, and he's also pretty terrible at that. So now you're, you're still in a little bit of a pickle with Love because he's either going to have to chase guys around on the perimeter a little bit or he's going to have to protect the basket. And we'll, we'll see how well that does. I mean, the Timberwolves managed to construct – what was a slightly above average defense around Love with probably you would say less defensive talent than these Cavs now have. Uh, And that was only a year ago. So it's not Kevin Love is not someone who automatically is going to torpedo your defense. You know, if you can get them playing the right way, but you know, we'll see if they can get there, but if they can get into sort of the, the low teens on defense, then their offense can assert itself enough to where they can at least be a contender again in the East.
0: Yeah, I I think there were a lot of good points there, and one thing that I was thinking about, you brought up the point about a stretch four, and I agree with that, is that the Cavs got really fortunate that other than Atlanta, who has Millsap, who's done a, a great job becoming a stretch four, most of the teams in the East that have those guys, they have them coming off the bench, Nikola Miritich, Patrick Patterson, You know, guys like that, but they aren't really, it isn't a part of their identity in the way that there are more teams like Draymond Green and for the Warriors, and I guess you could, LaMarcus is kind of a weird guy in that sense, but there are less teams in the East that can exploit that as a weakness, and so I feel like there aren't that many power forward where you're sitting there scared that Kevin Love's going to be on them.
1: Yeah, you know, actually I was talking to a scout in the last couple of days who made the exact point that you did. Uh, because we, we were talking about what I was just talking about, you know, how they're using love defensively. And, and that's that's a great way to look at it. I think Atlanta probably would have to be this team's biggest kryptonite, at least defensively right now. Uh, so they're, they're probably going to want to, and with Atlanta going as the number one seed and looking the best really of any team in the East over the last month and a half, and the Cavs really, it's hard to imagine them getting above the fifth seed at this point, uh, given how far behind they are, everyone, how far behind they are the top four, that looks like it could very well be a second-round matchup. And uh, that's going to be a problem for this Cavs team. There's no two ways about it, if Atlanta keeps playing the way they have been.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that for Cleveland, if Atlanta's the one, I think it'd be better for them to be the six because that keeps them out of there a little bit. And... The Cavs are also benefiting from an Eastern conference where there are a lot of, you know, better teams. I would say the top four is stronger than it was in recent years, which is nice, but there aren't many teams that have strong offensive players at both backcourt positions. And the reason that benefits them is Kyrie Irving does not I hope that he was gonna be substantially better defensively than he has been. He hasn't, at least as accord at least from what I have seen. And so what Schumpert allows you to do, you talked about how he can help with some of those assignments for LeBron. I could also see them doing something similar to what Mark Jackson did last year with Stephen Curry, sure, which is hiding, yeah. hiding him that way. But the difference is Kyrie is a substantially worse defender than Stephen Curry. So it actually makes some sense. Yeah, that,
1: that's a good point. And Shumpert is a guy who has had success against point guards. He always guarded Derrick Rose pretty well. I shouldn't say always because there was really only one year, but he's he guard, guarded Derrick Rose pretty well before they both injured their ACLs. And he's he's got enough quickness that he can – stay with point guards. He's got a little more foot speed than some of the other sort of, you know, two guards, a guy like Wes Matthews or something. Like he's definitely a guy who I think can really fill some holes for them defensively if he can get healthy.
0: I think that what's fun about the East is that while the, the Hawks are, I think, are playing really well right now and they've been a stronger team both just if you look at the wins and losses and when the limited amount that I've been lucky enough to watch them play. But what I like is that in the current format, which I complain about a lot, you know about that, I complain to you a lot about it, is that while there there are those problems, each conference seems pretty well balanced, at least after the first round. So I think it'll be exciting to see how, uh, theoretically, a Washington-Chicago-Washington-Toronto series would look, and if it was a different format we probably wouldn't be seeing that. And so I think that the East will be interesting, even though we don't know exactly how all the pieces will fall yet.
1: No, I agree. I think the the conference disparity in the 6 through 10 spots is obviously enormous. But among those first four teams, and then I think if Cleveland can get to where they might be able to now post-trade and can get everyone healthy, the first five teams... In each conference, they probably stack up pretty well with one another. The Hawks have the third-best record in basketball right now behind Portland and Golden State. And, you know, the other uh, the other four teams look pretty good and, and compare pretty well with teams like Dallas or Houston or, or what have you. You know, it's just that the East doesn't have San Antonio and Oklahoma City sitting in the likely seven or eight spots either.
0: And that leads into another Kind of amazing subplot of this week is that we saw the bottom of the playoff picture in the West get even stronger because Oklahoma City added Dion waiters and while I think we're both pretty skeptical about Dion waiters at least they added him for nothing in terms of current cost. obviously, there is a cost with the draft pick, and I'm dubious of whether that will be whether Dion waiters will be better than that pick, but they did add they did add talent and Phoenix added Brandon Wright, who I think could be a very interesting piece for them. I'm tr- I'm still trying to grasp how—I I get what Phoenix is doing. I think that they're the break glass in case of emergency in the West, but it's just going to be brutal that one of these teams isn't going to get knocked out, much less the Pelicans with Anthony Davis.
1: Yeah, I think—well, the, the Pelicans are another one of those teams that uh, they just don't quite have enough— Real NBA players on their team, they're suffering. are suffering from the same issues that the Cavs were, where they had a lot of top end talent, and then they just have too many guys off their bench, especially when Eric Gordon was hurt, who are just you know barely NBA players. So, so I, I think they're pretty clearly a tier below. Maybe they'll they'll get back into it now that Gordon is back. But uh, yeah, I mean, Phoenix is other than that five game losing streak, they've had a pretty pretty awesome season, and they're getting the three-point guards to work together now. I think Wright is someone who's going to really help them. He and Isaiah Thomas running pick and roll on their second unit is going to be really unstoppable for a lot of teams second unit, and Wright is someone who also might be able to play in the closing lineup with Marquise Morris if the other team doesn't have a huge center who can muscle him around. Uh, having that dive threat who can catch alley-oops and suck people in, he's going to work perfectly there just as well and perhaps even better than he did in Dallas. So, you know, I wouldn't count Phoenix out yet. Yesterday was pretty rough, though. Phoenix was up most of the game. They lost then, and it's down the end to San Antonio. And then Oklahoma City was down most of the game and came back and won against the Jazz, another team that's unexpectedly playing great right now. So, uh, I think Oklahoma City is still the favorite in my mind, but it's getting to the point now where Phoenix has enough of a lead that it wouldn't be entirely shocking if OKC were to miss it.
0: Yeah, and, and the other component of all of that, I refer to Phoenix as the break glass in case of emergency with the idea that, I, we hope it doesn't happen, but somebody will have some sort of injury. And I think what I've, been, what I've taken away from the year so far is that the West is so strong that I don't think any team, maybe the Warriors, but obviously they have. if Curry was hurt, that would be a difference, is that I I don't think there's any team that's so good that if they lost a key piece, they would be able to for sure stay in the picture with the depth of everyone else. Well, so here's a question
1: for you. What are the chances that San Antonio does not make the playoffs?
0: I I was thinking about this yesterday. I, I mean... 10% maybe? 20%? Because they have been missing Kawhi for a long time, and Kawhi is, I think he's their best player. So assuming that they can get him back and that he won't miss as much time in the second half as he has in the first half, I think that that should help them a lot. But at the same time, they're not, I don't know, I, I haven't, I don't have a clear sense of the Spurs yet, but it certainly is a possibility that should not be ignored. And I think that, the the same is true for the Clippers, but the Clippers, it's more of an injury risk and, and again, a depth issue, but I think both of those teams should be a little bit scared right now. I think the
1: Clippers are going to be safe, you know, unless unless Chris Paul goes down, that could be an issue. If they lose him for 20 games, they don't have Darren Collison on the team this year, and, and Collison, you know, I've never thought of as a, as a panacea, and he's kind of come back to earth a little bit now in Sacramento, but he, at least, was someone who was able to keep the team afloat. Jordan Farmar has been pretty terrible this year, and not only that, but he also has struggled with lower back and hamstring injuries that seem to befall him nearly every year as well. So he's probably he might miss more time. If he and Paul miss time, then what are you going to do? It's going to be Jamal Crawford, I guess, at point guard. They just got rid of Jared Cunningham, and, of course, you know, they're hard-capped as well, so they have issues even adding a minimum guy. I think they're 1.7 million below the hard cap right now, so they got to watch out for that, too. So that's – but, you know, Paul – and Paul, you know, he's missed some time in these last last few years, so that's a possibility. But they also – I think they have a pretty solid five-game lead over the eighth spot, it looks like. They're 24-12 and – uh, or oh, I'm sorry, over the ninth spot, and then New Orleans eighteen and eighteen, Oklahoma City is eighteen and nineteen. So, I, I think they're safe. San Antonio twenty-two and fifteen. I worry about them a little more, especially because they're not playing that well. And Kawhi still doesn't really have a timetable for his return. He is probably their best player, or maybe second best behind Tim Duncan. Parker still hasn't been able to quite get right yet. Their offense has really struggled at San Antonio. And and uh, the other thing that people aren't talking about is Boris Diaw has not been even close to the same player uh, that he was a year ago. And he's really one of the main guys who makes their offense tick. So, you know, I mean, San Antonio, you believe in them. You saw the level they were able to get to in the finals last year. You assume they're going to be able to get back to that if Kawhi comes back. But... You know, I I think until he does, you're probably safer. It's probably more accurate to say they're going to continue along the way they have been than to say that they're going to get better until he returns. And that could leave them in a difficult position. I'm not going to predict them to not make the playoffs. I still think that healthy, they're one of the biggest threats to the Warriors. But, you know, I I also think that there's really no way they're going to end up now in – um, so maybe not. They're only five four games behind. But I think it's pretty unlikely they're going to end up in the top half of the bracket. And so winning three series in a row to get to the finals without home court, that's a big ask for any team, even that dominant San Antonio team we saw last year.
0: Yeah, and from what we've seen, it, it would take a lot for them to get to from where they are now to that. And the, the Spurs have the challenge of reaching that pinnacle they have they have a long way to go but one of the questions I wanted to ask you um because it's something I was thinking about a lot the last couple days is the idea of teams at full strength so we're it's not going to talk Cleveland with Anderson Verjao because he's not coming back this year but just thinking about it if, if we're you can think about it fast forwarding if you want but whatever it works for you mentally if if you were to pick the two best teams at full strength in each conference who do you think that would be right now
1: well, so that so that's interesting. I mean, you can look at who's playing the best right now, except for the teams that are missing guys and kind of trying to project what that's going to look like, or who you think is going to be the best at the end of the year. I think Golden State is playing so well, despite the fact you want to say they haven't done it before, despite the fact you might want to say some of these guys, you know, are so far above their career norms that they may regress. They have so many good guys on that team now. They really go, like, 10 deep with, like, real quality, almost starter-level guys, maybe nine deep with, you know, starter-level guys. And they've just – I think their point differential – or, or their, I'm sorry, their net rating is up to, like, you know, the mid-11s now. Like, that's, you know, getting close to, like, among the best teams in NBA history level. So with the way they've been playing statistically, I think you – You would be foolhardy to make them anything other than the favorite at this point unless they suffer some injury concerns. And then I think you would have to go with Portland and Dallas uh, as the next level. Those two teams, from a statistical standpoint, are quite above the next tier of Houston-Memphis and the Clippers, despite the fact that they all have similar records. And then in the East, oh, you know, I think it's you look at either Chicago or Atlanta as the two out of out of there. Chicago really seems like they are underachieving to me, and a big part of that is just because they're not getting what they need to out of certain spots. Kirk Heinrich is playing, you know, twenty-four minutes a game or something like that, and he's just nearly a complete zero offensively. He's someone who is gonna have to be excised from the rotation for them to reach their full potential. And Joaquin Noah and Pau Gasol playing together with the way that Noah is playing right now, coming off of his knee injury, and the fact the team just aren't guarding him, he's another big problem now for the Bulls. He really is going to need to play center, and it, you know it's too bad that those, they have both of those guys, but really it's just you're lessening the sum of those parts to play those two guys together. But you know, I'm not sure I have faith in the Bulls to figure those things out, and... If not, you know, then you have to start to worry about them a little bit. And then, of course, you know, there's also whether Derek Rose can get back to the level that he's going to be. At. I mean, they've just been horrible offensively the last five games. So I think, you know, you got to go with Atlanta as that last representative in that kind of top four that you just asked me about.
0: Yeah, I, I think that. The team that if you're going on pure full strength, they haven't played like it. I would add the Spurs in just because I think at full strength, I think their talent is there. But the Bulls, what's scary to me about them, you talked about the idea of Heinrich's minutes and everything like that, is just that you and I talked about before the season that it all. I think it always felt like that they're the combinations of big men that made the most sense. Obviously, you want to play Noah and Gibson together at stretches and probably close games with them. But have some heavy minutes with Noah and Miritich and then some heavy minutes with Powell and Taj. And we've seen so little of those combinations that it makes me think that at this point, you know, obviously Thibodeau's had the idea in his head, and I'm sure they've played at least a few minutes together, but it's surprising that the equilibrium is still so close to what it started at as opposed to what felt like the natural conclusion.
1: Uh, No, it's actually sadly not surprising to me, to be honest, because uh, Thibs is for all of his many strengths, just does not shown much ability to adapt to what I think are, frankly, some fairly obvious lineup choices, you know, whether it's not playing Heinrich, whether it was bringing Carlos Buzer off the bench last year, you know, whether it's in the playoffs, whether it was bringing Heinrich off the bench so he could match up with Andre Miller in the post, you know, instead of them just getting killed for five minutes a game when they were trying to guard Miller with DJ Augustin, whether it was bringing Taj Gibson in with six minutes left in the first quarter, and then having him play eighteen straight minutes and be exhausted by the end of his stint—I mean, there's just a lot of things that—or whether it was starting Keith Bogans back in 2011, there are just a lot of things that, frankly, I think are real obvious that he could improve about his player usage. And this is not to say he's a bad coach; he's, you know, has been worth his weight in gold for the Bulls these last four years. But it is frustrating to see some of these very obvious things that they could be doing a lot better. And to go back to your last question, yeah, I mean, I, I shouldn't have skipped out on San Antonio and Oklahoma City. I think those, those two teams, just for how good they've been in the past, you obviously have to put them in the conversation. But, you know, with how they've played so far this year, it's tough. I mean, they, they, neither team has gotten there yet. San Antonio maybe because of health, but even Oklahoma City when they've been healthy, so uh, you know, I I think while they've been great in the past, I I want to see them prove it this year first before I put them quite in that conversation.
0: It was funny when you mentioned Darren Collison; it got me thinking about one of those crazy subplots that I'm going to be super invested in for the second half of the season. Is what's going on with the pick that the Bulls rode by Sacramento? Because. That pick oh. is projected for ten spots, and right now the Kings are sitting tied for the eleventh worst record. And yeah, things can happen. Oh, that pick, that pick is gone
1: for the for or for the Bulls. It's gone. They're they're keeping it. I mean, I on the day that or the day after Mike Malone got fired, I, I well, you you started off running your piece early on about you know picks that could encourage tanking, and then I think a lot of people with how the Kings started thought, oh, no, there's no way they're keeping that. There's, there's no way they're keeping that pick. It's going to the Bulls. But on the day Malone was fired, I was like, ah, you know, let's. Uh, I don't think this is an intended consequence, but they might actually end up being better off in the long run because they keep this pick and then hire a real coach for next year, and they'll have they'll have that guy. So this is why protected picks are so ridiculous. Like the Kings make what is really looking like a terrible move so far in firing Michael Malone, given how they've played after since he's been gone. And they might end up actually benefiting from it in the long term, which is, is so ridiculous. So this this is why you know this is one of my hills to die on is that picks need to either be just lottery protected or you know protected at some level beyond the lottery, but once nothing lower than lottery because you just get so much overpowering incentive to tank to keep your pick.
0: Yeah, I would say the only reason that you would you keep that kind of thing in there would be if there were a situation where it wasn't truly a draft, like guys were open to be signed or something like that, but then we're talking so far outside the system. But the team that is going to maybe be your worst enemy in terms of this because they've been coming on so strong is the Utah Jazz. I've been so excited by how well they've been playing.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been awesome. Rudy Gobert is a guy that... I was lucky enough to see really when he burst onto the scene at the 2012 EuroCamp in Italy. And I, I always liked him. I, I never really, you know, it certainly had some personal draft misses over the years, but I never really understood why he dropped to 27th after people were talking about him as a potential top-five pick after that EuroCamp performance. And he's really has validated that. He's been, he's been amazing. And and this, a jazz team that... Has just been horrendous defensively the last two years and really hasn't had a good defense since the Stockton and Malone era. Is now looking like world beaters with Favors and, Go- and Gobert up front. Now, and his cancer has been out with an ankle injury. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with him coming back. Are they going to put him back in the starting lineup now or are they going to bring him off the bench? I think if they're trying to win games this year, with how they played, you got to bring him off the bench. But, you know, that has the, he's a, a guy that the organization has invested in pretty highly, so they may not be willing to do that. But I don't know how they're doing it with this wing rotation either. I mean, they've got Gordon Hayward and Trey Burke are really the only two smalls they have who are at all established in the NBA. And they're still being extremely competitive. It's remarkable what they've been doing, and, and Quinn Snyder deserves a lot of credit for it.
0: Snyder does deserve a lot of credit for it, and what's so exciting for me with them is that they're in a situation kind of like what happened to the Hawks with Dennis Schroeder, where they not only have assets that will become things, they're going to keep their own pick this year and things like that, it's that they have Dante Exum, so they should improve internally, as well as getting additional talent, and so... I'm both excited for them now. It's been it's been fun to watch them play. I, I think for me, somebody, uh, I wish I could remember who tweeted last night, they are like, oh, I wonder why like, they were talking about how it was kind of surprising that Rudy and Favors was working so well. And my, my response was just that rim protection trumps all. You know, rim protection is such a key thing for defenses. And what's exciting is they can add all of this stuff, but they have core pieces together that are going to stick around because... Favors is under contract, Hayward is under contract, Exum is under contract, Rudy's under contract. And so they can add to that and become a really fun team that also fits within the limitations of being a harder-to-attract-free-agent a- talent destination.
1: Derek Favors making about uh, $12 million a year looks pretty good right now, doesn't it?
0: It really does. And I think that Utah could benefit more from the salary bumps than I think a lot of people have have really considered because what they did is they got those guys under contract. Favors' contract to me was on the high end when it was signed. Gordon's was definitely on the high end when it was signed, but now they look fine and they're going to look remarkable in two years when the cap is so much higher, the average salary is so much higher, and those guys are still going to be under contract and still getting better. They're going to be approaching their primes.
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, I'd probably, I'd, this is probably the third podcast I've, I've talked jazz on in, in the last week. So I'm loath to to repeat myself too much. What else has stood out to you over the last couple of weeks since we last talked?
0: What's been surprising to me, and I haven't watched as much of them, and that's kind of why I wanted to talk with you about them, is I've been very impressed with how well Portland has hung on without Robin Lopez. I expected that to be a, a much more catastrophic thing than it has been. I'm so I'm so happy for them in that sense, but I'm also very impressed that they've been able to stay close to the top of the West without one of their most important players, especially with Nikola Batum not having a good year.
1: Yeah, that is surprising. I think, you know, just the three-point shooting between Lillard and Matthews and, and then with Aldridge, with those three guys, you're always going to have a good offense. But yeah, it's really remarkable what they've been able to do defensively even when lopez was in there because they were you know really a team that just didn't stop anybody last year they're below the league average on defense and now they're a lot better and i think you know the continuity that's been one of the big buzzwords this year uh and i think there's a lot to it they're executing stats system a little better they're a team that stays solid uh they don't take a ton of risks but they make you shoot over them. And another thing is that Lillard has gotten a lot better. I mean at, you know most first and second year point guards, especially guys with as big of an offensive burden as he has, are just gonna be pretty bad defensively. He's improved now at the point of attack, getting over screens. So that's and that's extremely important with the way they play, dropping their centers back on the pick and roll. Because now he's getting over at least enough that he can harass the ball handler from behind, and not let him get a wide open look or not force the center to come out too far to where you're compromising the integrity of the rest of the defense. And so their ability to guard the pick and roll a little bit better with two players and then not give up any three pointers, that's one of their big strengths as well. So that, that's. Be able to do it. I mean, I think both they and the Hawks, I still, you know, Zach Lowe was saying the same thing. I still don't quite buy it, their defense, just because they don't quite have the level of defensive talent that some of the great defenses in the league have. But if, if you look at it, there are not really any great defensive teams this year outside of Golden State, where you can see, you know, I mean, you've got Houston, you've got Portland, You've got Atlanta, all kind of surprisingly good defensive teams here. Houston, I buy a little more because they have great talent at three positions with Ariza and Beverly and Dwight Howard, and now and Smith was another guy who can defend his position well when he's engaged. But outside of Houston and Golden State, a lot of these teams are doing it with execution much more than talent in the top ten teams right now.
0: Yeah, they, they really are, and it's shocking to see that. I think we'll see Oklahoma City, when they get closer to full strength, I think their defense will get better. I think San Antonio, too, with Kawhi. But the Warriors, I think that's something that we should talk about a little bit, that the double that they're potentially going to do this year is absolutely insane, which is they could possibly yeah, I think lead, I know the, exactly what lead the here. league in defensive efficiency and leading the league in pace. It seems almost impossible because it's so antithetical to how a lot of us grew up thinking about defense and good defensive teams to have a team to have a team that and also a team that is really good on offense. You know, like that's that's what's crazy about it. There, there's so many different kind of good attributes put together in a combination that I honestly don't remember ever seeing like
1: it. No, it is. I and I, I tweeted out on their game on Monday that this is a team. It, against Oklahoma city when they were just waxing them that this is a team and has all, all the amazing attributes that you said, but you know, playing the, this aesthetically pleasing style on offense and then still having the defensive talent and, you know, just the drive to compete defensively and, and their communication and their switching. And, you know, they just do so many smart little things defensively with guys like green and Thompson and Iguodala, that you know, it's really. I think this might be my favorite team to watch on both ends since the Chicago Bulls of the Jordan era. They're a team that you know, or if you look at teams like the Kings and Suns uh, of the two thousands, they're a great offensive teams. The Kings probably came the closest. They had a top five defense, I think, one year. But those teams weren't anywhere near the juggernaut defensively that this team is. And this is also an amazing offensive team. It's probably one of the most aesthetically pleasing offensive teams that we've seen in the last 15 years as well. So yeah, I mean, what, what they're doing is amazing. It's, I'm so lucky to see all of their games in person. It's, it's, it's can't miss basketball. You know, if you're on the East Coast, stay up, watch some of their games. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, it, it's really hard to, to really convey all of that. And then the, the component that I think about a lot, it's its joked about a lot in the Bay Area sports writing community, is that so many guys, it feels like they're having the best performances of their career. And what you think about with this Warriors team is that there are so few guys who are being, you could call it, underutilized. It seems like everybody's being used well and they're they are fitting in well. And I, I think the, in some ways the best example of that is the combination of Draymond Green and Harrison Barnes. Those are guys who... For because they had more established players in front of them under Jackson, often played with second units, and I think it hurt them a lot because they're not those guys. There are certain guys that are great for carrying second units, and you know they can do that. I think of a guy like Jamal Crawford. You know he's he's great in that role. There are certain guys who if the, it's better if they're a third or a fourth wheel on offense because it allows them to work. And Draymond has just exploded both by getting to where he is in the league and maturing and growing his game. But also because when you surround him with better talent, it allows those parts of his game to sing, and that is a huge development for this team.
1: Alright, so, uh, gun to your head, are the Warriors going to win the championship this year or not?
0: No. gun, Gun to my head, they're not, but I would say right now, and this is the first time that I have ever thought it, much less said it, this is the first time that I've ever thought of them as the favorites, today. And... That's a huge step. I mean, because I was always in the, oh, you know, the Spurs are better and all that. And and they are. I think the Spurs are better full strength. But the Warriors are going to have a couple of huge structural advantages unless the bottom falls out. And obviously, there's, there's that to consider is that they have a really nice home court advantage. And if as long as they keep playing their game, they should play. They should have game sevens at home the whole time. And their talent makes sense together. And they have a coaching staff that understands how to use it. So I I think that they have as good a chance as anybody. And the other huge thing that's happened for me thinking about them as the favorites is that I was always of that mind of, oh, you know, whoever gets there from the East is going to have a puncher's chance, and if it's so much easier for them to get there, then you have that. But there is not a team in the Eastern Conference right now that I would have any confidence in in a seven-game series against the West unless that West team got hurt or something in the finals, in the conference finals.
1: Well, I think actually outside of the Warriors, I would give the Eastern Conference representative a decent chance. But let's, we may even be a little bit too down on Golden State if we can actually believe that this performance is, has been real. So per 9-line calculus, which does it by actual possessions instead of estimated, the Warriors have an 11.7 net rating. They're outscoring opponents by 11.7 points per 100 possessions. The next highest team is Portland at 7.8. This team is so much better than the rest of the league right now in how they've played. It's ridiculous. I can't remember the last time that I saw a team that was so much better than the rest of the league. I mean, maybe the 08 Celtics would be the last one that that comes to mind. I mean, if this is how the year ends with these type of numbers, like you have to make Golden State a massive favorite whether you want to – say that the West is so deep and blah, blah, and no team can, can come out of it, et cetera. I mean, those are just staggering numbers. And, and you know, at, at some point, you have to begin to trust those. I mean, there, there are always reasons not to, but a four-point net rating advantage over the next team, that is massive.
0: One of the things that you have to consider is you go, oh, is this sample representative? You know, is is what we've seen so far... Will that be able to continue? And they were missing who I still think is their second most important player, which is Andrew Bogut. They were missing him for a lot of that. They were missing David Lee, who was a useful depth piece, and while Spates filled that role very ably, and I think Spates is a guy who you could say he's his performance might not have been representative, they're not one of those situations where you go, oh, they're going to crash back to Earth. They've, they're not this good. They might not be this good, but they're pretty dang close, and that's a really important thing to consider with this is that they're not they haven't had all of the chips fall this isn't a situation like let's say portland last year where obviously their defense has improved this year but like with health that everyone was there and so you go oh well you know if they lose that this is a really really good warriors team that still has a lot of baggage in their stuff and the other one that you and i both know a lot about is that those comparative point differentials and everything include the points where they've knocked teams out and they've been ahead by 20 in the third quarter and they play their backups who then get waxed and take that 20 point lead to a six point lead. And that still gets carried in the numbers because you can't be like, okay, this game is over. Just turn it off.
1: Yeah. I think that's starting to even out a little bit now because, because they found with, with Lee being back and and the emergence of holiday, they they found a better bench unit and and a better, uh, Garbage time units. We haven't seen that as much, and we've also seen some games lately where they've pulled away on uh, both on Wednesday and and Friday. They pulled away at the end, and again, that was a little closer. I think that's starting to even out. But yeah, I mean, that, that's uh, what they've been doing is is pretty remarkable. Who do you think is the biggest threat to them in the in the whole league right now? Is there a team that matches up extremely well with them? You think
0: the Spurs. It's still the Spurs. Yeah, it will be, it, it will be the Spurs because one of the things that the Warriors do is that if you make the extra pass, some that will be open there. That was the truth in Jackson's system as well. The Spurs can do that, and they have the defensive talent to make it work because what, what the Warriors have is they have players that have skill all across the board. But when you can play Danny Green or Kawhi on Stephen Curry and be able to hide – Parker somewhere, and I think in that series you'd put Parker on Harrison Barnes, you, you're you not losing that much if you're San Antonio, and you're gaining something really powerful on Curry. That isn't to say that he would he could not overcome it, I'm just saying that would be the biggest challenge for them.
1: Yeah, man, that would just be... That's probably the series that I most want to see, is, is Golden State, San Antonio, with San Antonio full strength. Really, the only time... I get the go that I ever was was at all thought the Warriors were overmatched this year was that game San Antonio at Golden State pretty early on in the year. Granted, the Warriors have made some strides since then, but that was one of San Antonio's only healthy games. And the Warriors, that's one of the few games where they just haven't been able to stop the other team. Tim Duncan was just screening the heck out of, of Steph Curry on ball screens and Tony Parker was able to get into the lane and, and really cause havoc against the Warriors. And so that's and, and then defensively, who else has two great defenders on the wing? You can put Kawhi Leonard on Clay, and then you have Danny Green on Steph. Now that takes Manu off the floor. They may out they may actually their best lineup against the Warriors might be going with Kawhi at the four, and then you have Ginobili, Parker, and Danny Green along with Duncan. But yeah, the matchups in that series would be fascinating. Are you then, you know, are you going to put Parker on Barnes like they had back in 2013? How much would the Warriors try and attack that individual matchup? Uh, you know, I think Parker could definitely be hidden on Iguodala if he's the guy who's in there. There are just a ton of really fascinating things that would occur in that matchup, and that's probably what I most want to see if the Spurs can get healthy.
0: What I thought of when you met, we were talking about the idea of a Warriors-Spurs thing is this is going to be a real throwback, but Bay Area fans will be able to appreciate it. Is Years and years ago, when Young and Aikman were the quarterbacks of the, of the Niners and Cowboys, SI ran a cover called The Real Super Bowl, which was about the NFC Championship that year, which was the Niners and the Cowboys. I believe the Cowboys won that game and won the Super Bowl. But it might have been the one that the Niners won against the against the Chargers. But I feel like that's what that series would be—is to be like, okay, this is the finals. That doesn't mean the team from the East can't win. But that is the series that people like you and I would be circling as opposed to the finals.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's true. What about uh, what about the East? You don't think anybody could uh could hold a can to Golden State? Uh, you know, assuming that they make it through without injuries.
0: Oh, I, I certainly think they would have a puncher's chance. I, I think that a team like the Wizards... I think any of the teams. Atlanta's a really... They're a really talented team. Uh, I'm, not,
1: I'm not buying the Wizards. They have, like, a three-net rating. Like, they, it, it's... Or, you know, it's, I mean, they play caused, a little better. They cause play,
0: problems. But... I think Wall... I think a Wall ha- brings some of the things to the table that have caused Curry problems in the past. There's a little bit of... He has some of the Chris Paul kind of tenacity stuff right now, and he's just a physical beast. Uh, I think that would be useful. They're a little bit too traditional. I mean, if I were to do that with Washington, I'd do a lot with Pierce at the four and just kind of try to mess with the Warriors. But I'm not completely sure. And the Bulls are obviously a really good team. But I think we're in that situation we're talking, you know, in the 20 to 30% range. One small thing I wanted to bring up, because you you made the point about on calculus, Calculus's numbers – because I know a lot of listeners would actually appreciate the difference but probably don't know it do you want to take a take a minute to explain why the possession numbers why that matters to you
1: yeah I mean it's, it it actually doesn't matter that much I mean the, the difference is basically that basketball reference NBA.com ESPN they just estimate what the possessions are based on the box score like they they look at the number of free throw attempts that typically result in and ones. And then they don't count team offensive rebounds, which is when you know the ball goes out of bounds, but the offensive team keeps possession after a rebound. And so those numbers are usually uh, actually depressed a little bit because you have more possessions sometimes. Because an offensive rebound actually takes away a possession. So you have more possessions on the NBA.com or on uh, you know, the ESPN numbers. And so all the ratings are a little bit inflated by maybe one, two, three points per 100 possessions. So the nylon calculus numbers actually go into the play-by-play and calculate it by throwing in the offensive team rebounds and then also actually calculating it based on and ones or technical fouls or, or fouls on, on shooting a three so that you know exactly how many possessions were used and it's not skewed by more free throw attempts, you know, basically teams that get a lot of and ones or get fouled shooting a lot of threes actually get penalized in those estimate numbers, and so that's why these these numbers are useful. Uh, hopefully that wasn't too dorky for a lot of people, but yeah, so, uh, you know, don't we don't need to make this an ad for Nylon Calculus, but if you're looking at just team by possession stats, that's probably the place to start. I'm
0: happy that I got a space on this cuz I, I, it's it's a useful thing. I think one of the one of the fun components of all this for us is that you know, we have so many tools in the toolbox now that we didn't used to have before, but now we have the ability to kind of create things that we always said, "Oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this?" And what why I appreciate it is that okay we had that idea you and I I think you and I talked about it a couple years ago and it's like you know now now we can do it so we don't have we don't we can take the guesswork out of it so we well, take the well guess-
1: we, we can't do it no we can, people, <laughs> I, I can't I can't do it. I can calculate it on an individual game basis but uh, no I'm glad that someone can do it
0: yeah that, that's a better way to put it um I, I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to end this unless you have other things you that you want to hit obviously I'm happy to do that but I, I'm not a big awards guy I think you know that about me but I do think that this is a fun little time to talk about it. And the only two I'm going to ask you on, because they're the only two I really care about, at least right now, are Defensive Player of the Year and MVP. You can open the pool as much as you want, or you can talk about a single guy. Just who's kind of standing out in those two concepts.
1: All right, well, the Defensive Player of the Year, I think it's tough to take him from a team that's not really, you know, one of the best defenses. And so the number one defense is Golden State. It's followed by Portland, Houston, Milwaukee, Atlanta. And so, really, Golden State is at 99.8. Portland and Houston are in the 102s. And then you go into kind of a big scrum between, uh, you know, the next eight teams or so are all between 103 and 104. So, I mean, you got to look at the number one defense first in, in Golden State. And Bogut, before he got injured, Might have been a natural choice, but he's never someone who's played a ton of minutes. And their defense really held up almost the same without him, frankly. And so then you you have to look at, all right, well, who else is responsible for Golden State's success? Now, that may be a little reductive. They've got a lot of great defensive players on that team. But I think Draymond Green is really probably their best defensive player when you consider the number of minutes he plays, his versatility, the fact that at the four, he can switch on to pretty much any player, one through five. He's probably the only player in the NBA, maybe a locked-in LeBron James would be another one who can really legitimately guard five positions at an average or above level uh, because he's just so strong he doesn't get back down in the post very often. So yeah, he's he just prevents the other team from... Uh, he is also is great on stretch fours. He did a great job in Kevin Love last night. Who really only got a couple of three point shots, uh, and some of those were when he wasn't in the game. So he totally negates really some of the ways that defenses or, or that offenses can get advantages. They can you can set picks. Well, Draymond Green just switched onto your point guard. Now you want maybe you can throw it to your four to try and post up Clay Thompson, who also is you know is you know, not a complete slouch or, you know, you want to run a pick and roll with your stretch four. Well, Draymond green is going to be able to cover that, or he's going to be able to help and then use his foot speed to get out to the three point line. He's got great hands. He's great on health defense. He's blocked over two shots. I think each of the last eight games. So just the incredible versatility that he has is frankly unparalleled in the league. and, I think he would be my choice at this point, you know, not only because of what he's done, but also because there aren't necessarily any incredibly obvious candidates on the rest of the teams. I think Dwight Howard, if he doesn't miss any more time and Houston continues defending like this, might start to become in the conversation. But he's, you know, missed uh, basically a third of the season so far, so it's hard to put him in there. Atlanta doesn't really have any particular individuals who stand out. Chicago is, you know, the 10th ranked defense. I'm not taking the defensive player of the year off of that team, you know, and on and on and on. So there's really, when you look at the teams below them, it's not only that Draymond has been so good, but that there aren't necessarily any obvious candidates on the teams that are also in the top five.
0: Yeah, I, I think that Draymond is definitely a worthy consideration. I if you were to classify the award and I've never really known I haven't seen the exact verbiage for Defense player of the year in a long time. I think he's the most valuable defender in the league, which is crazy considering how much I love rim protection. The other guy I would seriously consider is Tim Duncan. He protects the rim though. He's actually he does. Like, I know he's
1: six six, but he's actually pretty good at it. <laughs> That's like, true.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I think Tim Duncan deserves a lot of consideration, especially considering they've been missing Kawhi and they're still seventh. I mean I think that's pretty. I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah, he's probably got to be
1: number two right now. I would, I would say I agree with you on that, and and, and the the real plus minus numbers uh, certainly love what he's been able to do.
0: And then for me with MVP right now, I think it's Stephen Curry. I, I, there are a lot of guys that I think were in consideration, and. What will be fun is, I I've, I've, keep on hearing some cousins, but I think that if anybody gets consideration as being a good player on a less good team, it's going to be Anthony Davis, but I don't think he has really any meaningful chance of winning it. But Curry has been huge on both ends for the Warriors. They're the best team in the league. They And when you think about the MVP award, I wrote a piece handicapping it a few, a few weeks, maybe a few months ago, and the idea for me is, if, so there are separate things of who you think deserves it and who you think should win it, but... Part of the reason why I think both apply is that he's he's the reason that this Warriors team w- works so well because I feel like a lot of other point guards would work and they would be fine, but they wouldn't be the engine for this incredibly effective team. Do you agree with that? Yeah, they, they wouldn't be
1: good enough offensively, I think, with basically anyone else except maybe Damian Lillard. But, but let me ask you this. I mean, all right, obviously the Warriors are the story, and, and I do think there is... I'm not quite as, oh, you know, you just get caught up in the story, that's why you're voting for a guy. But I do think there is at least some modicum of feeling for me that the MVP should reflect in some respects what happened and what was important that year. You know, whereas – and that's why I might be loath to vote for someone like – Anthony Davis, especially... And the other reason you can't vote for Anthony Davis is, like, he's a big man on, like, a bottom-five defense. (laughs) You know, I mean, I haven't looked at it in a little while, but last time I looked, they were down that low. And, you know, he just... He's going to... Although he gets a lot of spectacular... Has a lot of talent and gets a lot of uh, box score numbers, like, you know, he can't be that good if he's the power forward on a bottom-five defense. But so, uh, I guess, that's a roundabout way of my saying... Do you really think Steph Curry's been the best guy in the league this year, or the most valuable guy in the league this year, or is some of that colored by the fact that the Warriors have just been so good?
0: I'd say it's definitely colored at least a little bit by that. I think the most outstanding player has been Anthony Davis. I don't think he's been most valuable, though. And what I always think about with with MVP for me is if you replaced a guy, I used to use League Average starter. Now I've kind of switched in my head to the 20th best. I don't know why I made that switch. There isn't a cogent explanation for it in my head. I think it's just that League Average got kind of weird. But if you replace them with that, how different would the team look? And for me, I think that the, the other guy who under that rubric that works incredibly well is Harden. Harden, if you swap him with the 20th best starting shooting guard in the league, the Rockets are a lot worse. They might actually, I think you can make the argument they would actually be more worse than the Warriors would be with Curry to whoever that would be, though some of that's a positional depth issue. But I think that it's a little bit of both. And, and the other component of it for me is that I thought for a long time, and I and I still think it's possible to agree, that you know the Oklahoma City guys, are they're such great players, and their team is going to probably make the playoffs, that they would be in consideration, but... Right now, Kevin Durant's played twenty less games than Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry provided so much value in those twenty games that it would be, to me, it would be really hard to make an argument for Durant because you're arguing that he would have to be so much more important to basically have a quarter of the season to just be sitting on the to have not started the race yet to still pass him. Well, so let's uh,
1: let's go through some of the numbers here so far. So, real plus minus that's ESPN. Basically, for those who don't know it takes a look at what the team does when the player is on and off the floor and purports to adjust for both the quality of the players on your own team and the opposition that you're facing at any given time. Based on that, Steph Curry is number one by quite a bit in the league. He's got an RPM of 8.3. Anthony Davis is number two at 6.7. So uh, he's quite above everyone else now. Certainly there are some sample size issues with using these type of things, especially because, you know, they're not playing they're playing a lot of minutes with the same guys, so you can't really adjust. But you know, if he's playing eighty percent of his minutes with Klay Thompson, that remaining twenty percent isn't enough time to really kind of differentiate between the two in a meaningful way necessarily. But you know, that's still that still kind of describes what's gone on so far. And he also, you know, has been the best guy in just overall plus minus over the, over the last two years, his true shooting percentage, 62.7, which, which accounts for the value of free throws and three-pointers. The league average is about 53%. So having the as high of a usage as he does while still being one of the most efficient players in basketball is just an incredibly valuable combination. And then you look at, you know, he's been able to hold up pretty well defensively. He gets a lot of steals, fuels their transition game. You know, so for a point guard, you certainly can't say he's been below average by any means. He's probably, you know, in the top 10 or so point guard defenders this year. So, yeah, I, I, and, and his overall PER is 27. So that's that's very good. Well, he's, well, he's fourth in the league in PER uh, behind Davis, Westbrook, and Durant. So... When you do look at all that and you look at how good the team has been, I think I'm on board with you saying that he's number one, especially because the second guy, the only guy that you might make a statistical individual argument for other than him, I think right now is Davis and his team hasn't been nearly as good. uh, So I think, and may not even make the playoffs. So I think, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with Curry. Absolutely. Let me come up with a good question to ask you since I'm the host of this program. Do you think that the Knicks can make the playoffs next year? Ooh,
0: I like that. Yes, I do, but I don't think that they will do the things necessary to make that happen. The East is so bad... Wait, hold on, hold on. Well,
1: let let, let me me kick off there. What what are the things necessary to make that happen?
0: They would probably need to overpay for guys who are more on the short end of that level. I mean, that would be guys like Draymond Green you know, things like that. Obviously, they would need a rim protector. And the other component of that is you could say, oh, well, if they got Marcus, they would do it. And that's true. You know, if they could sign Marcus, they would do that. But we, I think it's if my sister had wheels, she'd be a wagon. I think that's the expression. Like, you know, I think that that they have that. But the, the Knicks' biggest problem to me is that their timing for them is all wrong for this next coming season. I think it's going to be pretty good for the year after that if they can have the patience to do it. But they're just is not going to be the supply of the right kind of talent unless they get really lucky, and a team like the Bulls with Jimmy Butler or the Warriors with Draymond Green makes a huge mistake. I don't expect that to happen, but it could.
1: Yeah, I I think the, the odds of that are pretty low from all the reporting we've seen and the fact that both of those teams are really championship contenders. like You can't let that important of a piece go. I mean, maybe you would see the Warriors give up an asset to offload Iguadala or Lee for next year to reduce their tax bill. But yeah, no, they're not, uh, Butler and, and Green are not going anywhere. It would be nearly impossible for me what, to imagine that that, that that would happen. Well, but to, back yeah. to the Knicks. Yeah, I have a one for you
0: on that, on that point. What, how would you think about them if they added DeAndre Jordan or um, another capable rim protector that will be, let's say, Roy Hibbert? They're both potentially in this class.
1: Okay, good. Now you have two NBA players. Yeah, but, <laughs> I mean, but, but it's an it, important lately. NBA player. Yeah, well, okay. So DeAndre Jordan and and Carmelo Anthony, and you know, I'm not sure what else. I guess just some other filler well, and,
0: and whoever they get, whoever they get in the draft. So that person won't be very good next year. Calderon, yeah, I like Calderon, Calderon. A top Calderon's project. all right. I mean, he's not he's not horrendous or anything. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I think they actually they need to get rid of him. Uh, I mean, I, I think. You know it'll be, and not that he's such a bad player or anything, but just that you know he's thirty-three years old and makes seven million bucks the next two years. You know he's he's someone I thought actually he'd be a great fit on the Pelicans as just another guy, a guy who can play with Holiday, put push him to the two, shoot the ball, Uh, someone who's a good passer. They really don't have very many good passers on that team. That's a digression, but so it's interesting. You seem to have faith in them to kind of, you know, I guess, as you see it, and I think I do too, do the right thing by not going for the short-term fix and and overpaying. I mean, when we say that's the right thing because, you know, you the goal is to win a championship and and overpaying for pre agent talent uh, next year might, uh, you know, ultimately make that a lot harder. But Carmelo is going to be what he's, he's going to be – Either thirty or thirty-one. He's gonna be thirty-one next year. You know, you're you're paying him the max. He certainly is gonna be carving that they've been this this bad this year. So I'm not quite sure I have as much faith in them to not short circuit the process uh, as you do.
0: Well, for me, the difference is between can and will. I think that they won't do that, but I think they could. And the best thing for the Knicks would be to have another rough year and to do that. actually, if you want to get really technical, the best thing that could happen to them is to be bad enough to convince Carmelo to waive his no trade clause, so they can get rid of that and do a full reboot for 2016. That's what they should do.
1: If they yeah, it's play- so it's so hard to imagine that though, because I mean, think of how how old Bill Jackson is. You know, he's I think he's going to be 70 in the next couple of years. I mean, it just it doesn't seem like an organization that has ever really played the long game. And while, you know, I think Phil might be a little smarter than some, but not all of the people that they've had in there in the last 15 years. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems unlikely that they're going to be able to deal with this, especially since they've just been so
0: incredibly bad this year. I I know that neither of us is the most plugged in on Carmelo Anthony, but do you feel like I've been thinking about a little bit the last couple days that now that he has his money, I think that he might be more willing to waive his no-trade clause as long as he's not going to an abysmal team because he's going to be a pariah for this Knicks team as long as they're bad and he's there. So if he could go, probably not to the Bulls because I don't know how they could ever make that salary work, but let's say he could go somewhere that was not a horrendous market, was a decent market, maybe the Lakers or something like that, and be there that might be something that would interest him and that would be the best thing in the world for the Knicks because what their dream should be is instead of trying to say hey you can come here and play with Carmelo you can say hey you can come here and play with whoever the heck you want that should be their pitch to Kevin Durant in two years and I think that there's a a possibility of that but I just don't know Carmelo well enough to know how realistic
1: that is well maybe a better question is who wants him at this point that's really you know that, that is a team that's going to contend with him when you consider what his future salary obligations are. Maybe a trade will be possible in the summer of 2016 when everyone's going to have so much more space and, and they they might be able to just fit his contract in. But there's not a lot of teams that have just you know 18 million bucks in salary sitting around that they can send back for Carmelo, this isn't the NBA of five years ago, 10 years ago, when a lot of teams just had $18 million worth of guys on their roster who just weren't really doing anything. You know, it, it's teams are you know, many more teams have cap space. When you sign guys with cap space and, and there's also shorter contracts. So there are just so many less bad contracts in the league now to trade. And when you consider that, how much Carmelo makes? His age, the fact that his contract runs through age 35. I just don't think there are that many teams out there that really would want him right now. Uh, that are actually teams that would project to contend once they got him.
0: I agree with I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, and that is also for me the reason why if you have a guy who's more on the fringe of the max. You don't want to be the biggest contract and give them a no trade. Like that's that to me, that's the double that was devastating. If they had done either one, I think it would be a much more workable situation. If they had given him, let's say, ten million more total than the Bulls could offer, or fifteen or whatever, and not given him a no and given him a no trade, or given him what they gave him and not done that, then they'd have more flexibility. But it's that combination that makes that situation so just vicious and sticky and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's really interesting to think of, like, what situation he would waive the no trade to to go to. But, you know, in some respects, maybe they just say to him, hey, you know, like, we're just going to rebuild. And you can stick around for it if you want. Uh, we can try and trade you. You can you can it. You can go somewhere else. But that's the best thing for the franchise. I mean, I, I think that might be what they should do at this point when you just look at the, you know, really just the terrible talent that's on the roster right now. The other thing, though, is that they don't have their 2016 pick. He traded it for Andrea Bargnani. So, you know, I, I think that, that'll that be another reason why they're really going to want to try and get better for next year that I should have mentioned earlier, is they're not going to get the benefits of a high draft pick the way they would this year. So, I, I mean, I think I think probably what ends up doing is they spend their money, all of it, the best way they can. Maybe you know, you might see them pick up guys, you know, on sort of a a two year plan or one year plan, just overpay guys and try and maintain flexibility. Something similar to what the Hawks have done uh, under Danny Ferry. I think maybe that might be the way to go. Ultimately is try and maintain flexibility uh, while still using all, all of your cap space and overpaying guys, but not for too long. And I think, there's actually some guys that that would appeal to next year because everyone's going to want to get in on the 2016 bonanza when the cap goes up.
0: Yeah, and you could work with player options and things like that to make it to make it worthwhile for some guys and I mean we saw it even with Ed Davis with the Lakers this year, you know. There are people who could take that opportunity and run with it. The other huge reason that I think going under that strategy would be nice for the Knicks is and you we kind of alluded to this is It would be a very logical, fertile dumping ground for contracts that have one more year on them. And they could start moving on that this year, you know. Let's say they could trade Amari Stoudemire to somebody for a guy who who has some money tacked on for next year. Maybe you can get a small asset in return. There are teams that would be very happy with that because there are teams that think they're going to make a huge splash this summer. And if you can pull something like that out of your hat... I think that would be a huge benefit. They have a ton of expiring contracts and very little reason to have that money expire this year as opposed to next year.
1: You know, what might be an interesting deal that I just thought of. How about uh, David Lee and, and and I wouldn't do this if the Warrior if I were the Warriors, you know. But they could save so much money that they might and not really hurt the on court product this year. How about uh, you know some kind of an asset and David Lee for Amari Sodemeyer. With, with and, and for those who don't know, Lee's contract runs through 2016. I think he's at about $16 million. Amari uh, expires at the end of this year. So, you know, really, Stoudemire, not much worse than Lee at this point, still would give him some scoring off the bench with the second unit. And then he expires right when the Warriors need to pay Draymond Green a lot of money, and that'll really reduce and might even eliminate their tax bill. and. The Knicks get a guy who at least, you know, isn't horrible for 2016. He's gonna be massively overpaid, but they at least would get an asset. That's the type of transaction that I would be trying to do if I were them. But I think, you know, using sixteen million of their cap space on David Lee for twenty sixteen as a rental to pick up, you know, a first round pick or something is not something that Phil is is gonna be ready to do yet. I think he thinks he can do better with his sixteen million uh this summer, and he may well be right about that.
0: Yeah, I think you're on the right track. The Holy Grail for me for a few months now has been Kevin Garnett for exactly the same logic. Um, I mean, and there there are plenty of health and age-related issues there. But, yeah, I, I think that the – and I like that we're kind of going back to the Warriors because there is one more point that I want to make with them, and Warriors fans know that I've harped on this for multiple years now, but it's, it's something that's good to have out there, which is one of the gigantic questions with this team that now is relevant, shockingly relevant, is – is ownership willing to pay the luxury tax and for how long? Because if they're not willing to, they're going to have to do something now, whether that's letting Draymond Green go, which we think now is pretty unlikely, or moving David Lee or Iguodala or some combination of them. And that is going to be very telling, because while you don't you don't have to require a team an ownership to pay the luxury tax, we're learning from the Thunder that you, you can curtail your own potential by refusing to do so. And I think that's a huge storyline to follow that people may be like, Oh, that's next year. I think there's a very real chance that we're going to see something before the deadline that tells us all we need to know about that.
1: Did you read a uh, Kyle Kami's article last night or, or yesterday?
0: I haven't read it yet. Do you want to summarize it for the listeners?
1: Uh, I mean, he, he expressed his faith and he's a guy who's pretty plugged in with the Warriors that, that they would be willing to pay the tax for a year, uh, you know, with, with green and then Thompson's extension kicking in next year also, because then those guys come off the books at the same time, the cap really goes up a lot. So I, and I mean, there's a few other things to remember too. One is they, it's been reported by Forbes that they can opt out of their local TV deal at the end of this year. And considering they're probably going to have the greatest season in franchise history, and they've been breaking all sorts of local, records for ratings and individual games lately. They're making 28 million a year this year, you know, with what we've seen with TV rights deals and the Bay Area being the number five market in the U.S., that could maybe even as much as triple, potentially. Uh, You know, I'm a little loath to say that much, but, you know, we always underestimate how much it ends up being. So I'm thinking, like, maybe we'll maybe (laughs) overestimate this time. Plus,
0: plus, they're changing cities, and I think you could argue that they'll have a lot more traction. I don't think they'll lose many of their television fans, but they could gain a batch of casuals in San Francisco.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that that you know, granted they're going to be paying for a lot of that for a lot of that, which you know is not the case in in some other markets. Uh, but yeah, I mean that place is obviously going to print money when they move in there, and they're also going to want to make sure that they're absolutely as competitive as possible when they do move in there, because it's going to be, you know, that'll be, if they do that for the start of the 2017 season, uh, you know, that Steph Curry also can be a free agent in the summer of 2017. And in fact, will be a free agent. There's no way he's going to extend because he won't be able to get enough money. And so they're going to need to make sure that the team is as good as possible, that they don't do any moves that could be perceived as cheap before then to alienate him in the way that, You know, theoretically, LeBron James was alienated by the Mike Miller amnesty. So there are a lot of reasons why they can afford to and why it even makes financial sense to pay the tax that one year without giving up an asset. Also, they owe their 2017 pick to the Jazz already uh, as the price of offloading all those guys to pick up Iguodala in the summer of 2013. So I I think they're going to pay it um, unless they can find a way to get rid of Lee and Iguodala in a way that doesn't hurt the team on the floor at all and you know also doesn't require giving up too many future assets, I, I, my prediction would be they'll pay.
0: So you're, you're, are you going to pour water on my dream of them trading David Lee for Lance Stevenson?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I can't think of anything that they need less <laughs> at, at the moment.
0: If you were a team that was defending the Raptors like so if you're defending them would you worry too much about putting your best swingman defender on DeRozan I mean you do it if you could because you might as well but is he do you think he's good enough that you have to like that the Bulls are going to be sitting there going oh we have to put Jimmy Butler on him or like we have to time their minutes or anything like that
1: well who else is Butler going to guard on that team I mean I think you hit it on the head you you could
0: put him on Lowry
1: uh he's actually not that great on point guards he's He's a little better, I think on wing guys where he can get up into him and use his strength and direct them. He's not quite as good moving laterally over large areas. He's kind of better in short areas and and using his body to make sure that the guy can't get a shoulder past him. you know I, I like him much better against wing guys than against point guards and, and Derek Rose, if he gets to being healthy can do a fine job on those guys as well. And I also like, you know, usually a team's best wing defender is also a pretty good help guy. And DeRozan is not a huge threat at the three-point line, so you can actually help off of him a little bit. Uh, So that's another reason why you might want to put your best guy or or your best wing defender on DeRozan, unless you just have a terrible point guard. Uh, But the other thing, too, is DeRozan likes to post up, and he likes to shoot over guys in the mid-range. So if you're putting your, your – and Terrence Ross is a guy who can jump really high and shoot threes, so you want someone on him who can at least contest a little bit. So you're probably better off just leaving the point guard, I think, on Lowry and just staying solid instead of uh, switching everything up and getting into a mismatch with one of their wings on your point guard.
0: That makes complete sense. Well, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Alright man, always, always a pleasure uh, and I look forward to this uh, let's do it again soon.
0: Absolutely Thanks again to Nate Duncan for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Basketball Insiders, which is BasketballInsiders.com or you can follow him on Twitter at Nate Duncan NateDuncanNBA that's N-A-T-E-D-U-N-C-A-N-N-B-A He's one of the best people to follow on Twitter in my honest opinion. And his piece on Cleveland, which we talked about a little bit at the beginning, is Definitely worth reading. The minutiae in terms of the cap and the tax and then the Brendan Haywood contract, which we talked about, is really compelling, and it's an unusual situation. It was unusual when they acquired him for that purpose, and it's become even more interesting with time. I'm excited to see where the podcast goes in the next few weeks. Going to have some good guests on. Going to try to get in-depth on a couple teams when the situation warrants, probably end up doing a Warriors one at some point, just considering contacts and how much fun this team is to talk about, but Nate and I hit it in plenty of depth, but as I always say input is always appreciated, you can hit me up on Twitter at Daniel LaRue D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X or you can email me at daniel.laru at realgm.com I read everything, I respond to as much as I can, and I really do consider it because I care what you people what everybody thinks of the show it really does matter to me, so thanks so much for listening, take care, and make it a great day